So they were actually impulsive to start with. They're hungry to make what we call dopamine, which feels good. And they'd make dopamine by taking risks, being stupid, trying to make their mates laugh. And I can tell you now from the bottom of my heart, no boy from 12 to 15 wants to get out of bed feeling like a loser, that he's disappointing people. He is completely confused and he can be really grumpy because defensiveness is often coming through in anger. Welcome to Finding Peace in Parenting, the podcast where we deep dive into common parenting concerns. I am Rani. And I'm Tracy ann And today we're so thrilled to have parenting guru Maggie Dent joining us to talk about raising boys. We've had such an amazing chat with Maggie yeah. that we'll be running her interview over two episodes. Today, we'll discuss how to manage our boys' screen time, that's a biggie, the neural pruning that happens to the teenage brain, and how to raise boys in this world of girl power and gender fluidity. Tracy Ann, you are raising two teenage sons and a daughter. What is the biggest difference you have noticed between the genders? I've definitely noticed that I've got two teenage boys and a tween. Um, (laughs) I would say it's definitely the language. I really find that, you know, girls speak about things more freely. You know, it's a more open conversation Mm. about feelings and what's going on. And boys in those teenage years just tend to shut down or close off. Yeah. How about you? Oh, I have two boys who are in the years where their behavior is mostly uh, based on the hormonal changes, right? Mm. It's just understanding their way of communication, really. And I find a couple of other challenges as well is navigating wisely to be able to find their mistakes as their Mm -hmm. teachable moments rather than letting myself reacting. And then another one is also knowing when to let go, having that patience to love and support them unconditionally. I I find it really challenging. I think that's a big one, Rani, letting Mm. go. Yeah. That's hard for us mothers. Oh, gosh, hard, really difficult. Mm. Well, it's time to get Maggie on to share all of her wisdom. The wonderful Maggie Dent. Yay. (laughs) Hi, Maggie. How are you? Hello, beautiful ladies. I'm excited and really, really looking forward to our chat. Oh my God, this is the moment that we've been looking for. Guys, Maggie Dent is an author, educator and parenting specialist, commonly known as the queen of common sense. She's also an undisputed boy champion. Maggie is the host of ABC podcast, Parental as Anything. She's the author of seven major books, including From Boys to Men and Mothering Our Boys. And with four sons of her own, there is no one better qualified to talk to us today about raising boys. Welcome, Maggie. Oh, thanks. And there's two other things that helps me with boys. I was raised on a farm with brothers and very close to my dad, not so close to my mum. So I spent a lot of time with my dad. And then on top of that, as a high school teacher, you know, it was always the boys that I was drawn to supporting because they just made so many poor choices. And then when I was counselling full time, the boys would come to see me. So there must have been something on my forehead that said, you know, boy friendly or something. 
<laughs> Maggie, the first thing I want to ask is in this climate where gender equality and gender fluidity among some children is so front and center, why is it still so important to acknowledge the difference between the genders and as a result, raise them with different parenting styles? Oh, look, thanks for asking that question. At the beginning, every single single seminar that I run, whether it's mothering our boys, 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 or from boys to men, I put the disclaimer up that says we absolutely know that gender is not completely binary, but we also know now it's not a social construct. For a long time it was said that it's just what you do after they're born. We now have clear evidence that there's stuff that comes on the DNA, the genomes, the biology, There are things that happen in utero that change it. So we now know that for a statistically significant number of our boys, then these sorts of things are a challenge. And we now have statistics in Australia that show that boys do have more problems transitioning into big school from our longitudinal study of Australian children, as well as the um, early development census. So now we have evidence. um, And I just want to make sure that we give, you know, and statistically, they're not doing well. They're not doing well all the way through, right through to our suicide figures. So we know that there's something kind of not right. You know, I'm now a nanny to four precious little granddaughters. Holy heck, if I didn't know how different they are, <laughs> mate. I'm even thinking of writing a book of just little girls under six because they're so fascinating. But I do like girls. And I guess what I want is us to raise our boys to be whoever they're meant to be not some, you know, perceived thing they have to be alpha males or if they don't play sport, there's some sort of failure or if they're gay, there's something wrong with them, that we need to let them know whoever they are. We want them to shine in as authentic a way as possible to grow up to be healthy and hopefully happy at times. Mm, Correct. Give give them that permission, right? And and on that note, um, Maggie, you spoke about, you know, little girls and boys. So pre-puberty, what are the main differences between boys and girls? And should our parenting style differ with how we raise siblings? Oh, I think we have to start, you know, right before utero because we actually know that, (laughs) you know, when the sperm and the egg do their bit, well, it's female and it doesn't turn into male until somewhere in the first 12 weeks when that little fetus is marinated in testosterone. And that just actually slows down the brain development of our precious little boys. And we know that um, that that also there's some differences in the way that the brain interacts, and that's a big one, is that us girls have a corpus callosum, which means our left and right brain communicate beautifully, often to our detriment because it never, never is quiet, whereas what we know is boys and men tend to be, little boys tend to be in the right brain, which is the big, big picture thing. They're not into the language, logic, you know, all of the things that, oh my gosh, girls are so savvy so early. So emotionally, they're way more savvy, but they're often, so they internalize a lot of their, they judge themselves, don't we? That's why we're still awake at two o'clock in the morning going, oh my gosh, I haven't shaved my legs. I could have done another <laughs> load of washing. Oh my God, will I get into university? Because we just kind of never stop. Whereas we know that boys and men tend to be in the one box at a time, which frustrates the heck out of us. And that's what one of the biggest frustrations I know for mummies is that you can call out to your son no matter what age he is and if he's doing something he's interested in, he just doesn't hear us because he's in that box and we think he's doing it intentionally and then we want to, you know, growl at him and then he wonders what's wrong with mum. So when we put some of those factors in and the other biggie is that boys and men tend to use external experiences 
or events that they set up for themselves with which they judge themselves afterwards. And then if they like what they did and they've done good, they give themselves self-worth. Nobody can give a boy self-worth. And the self-worth is very fragile. So if they're able to, and it's a, you know, it's a story I say not to break mum's hearts, but to remind them having a clean house isn't always a good thing, particularly if a boy's decided he's going to build his Duplo, his Lego wall this high. And mummy comes rushing in because it's time for school. So quickly push all that away, pack it all back in the box. So the little boy never got to build it as high as he wanted to. And you've just told him it wasn't important and packed it away. So he's mm. kind of had his heart broken a bit there. So all I keep saying every now and then, if we can see that through the lens and what you do is you pause and go, if you haven't finished building it, how about you come back after school? And then he has a choice because he may have built it to where he wanted to. And it's so beautiful because I have mummies who tell me the difference it makes with their little boys that some of them from the back seat of the car after the first time they're allowed to leave it say things like, this is the best day of my life because today oh. I get to finish what I started building. Mm, like there's this precious nice. tenderness that's under some of the choices and if we don't get to see that lens, we misunderstand them, we make um, we make perceptions and thoughts that aren't actually valid and then often we want, we think there's something wrong with our son when in actual fact it's just a, a breakdown of communication. And so that follows all the way through to before puberty when all sorts of other things start changing. Yeah, it could it could make them feel that they are not good enough. That's it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Just the way they are. And also the big scar and this is, you know, I know it's kind of heartbreaking for us as mums. We often do go with that uh, or the roll the eyes. Now, little boys often pick up on nonverbal stuff and they'll go, oh, so I've disappointed mummy again. Mm. And it accumulates inside. I want to go home and hug them. I know I want to cry I now. know, but we can change that. As soon as we mm, know yeah. that, as soon as we realise that it's a fragile they're fragile emotionally, not strong. And I think girls are stronger and we keep treating them as though they're weaker. So we've got a bit of, you know, correction to do at both ends of the gender spectrum. And if we hold that tenderness, they, honest to goodness, will bust their little hearts to please us a bit more. And they do really, and then they tend to apologise when they make those terrible choices. Like, oh, sorry, mummy. Whereas before, they're waiting to be growled at. Yeah. yeah, Maggie, in relation to this conversation, during puberty, we know that there are going to be an increased level of testosterone, which in turn will affect boys' temperament, right? Boys, of course, do have different temperaments. We love your description of the lambs and roosters. How should we approach parenting these different types of boys? Well, there's a whole lot of other things that's also happening other than just testosterone that makes our boys unpredictable. And um, some of them are hormonal, you know. So vasopressin is another amino acid thing that messes with boys' territoriality, what belongs to me, and a sense of, you know, am I doing good but even in a more harsh way. So the surges of testosterone give them more energy, even our lambs. So the biggest challenge, I think, in the window is that Boys are still being conditioned. No matter where I go, they'll tell you they're still being conditioned to be the winner, um, to compete and win at all costs, that if you don't win 
and you're not the best, there's something wrong with you. So that conditioning, when it surged with testosterone, they then have this sad thing that happens in the brain. Not only is the brain pruning early, pruning off kind of some of the stuff they make quite good choices with, it's, you know, eight, nine and ten sometimes, it's like it increases their impulsivity and the impulsivity is increased because a certain amino acid is turned off. It's called GABA and GABA is an inhibiting influence in the brain. It's turned completely off. So they were actually impulsive to start with. They're hungry to make what we call dopamine, which feels good. And they'd make dopamine by taking risks, being stupid, trying to make their mates laugh. And also we can misunderstand the the banter that's about trying to make your mates laugh because that means you belong. The silly groping and slapping and farting and inappropriate calling out of things in my classrooms. Oh, so-and-so's got a stiffy. Um, they, they're not bad, but all of these things are coming together. So it increases the chances of them being growled at more often. And I can tell you now from the bottom of my heart, no boy from 12 to 15 wants to get out of bed feeling like a loser, like he's disappointing people. He is completely confused and he can be really grumpy because defensiveness is often coming through in anger. Yeah, mm. got right. And so, you know, and 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 often us mummies know that they're forgetting things. We know that they're they're disorganized. We know that things have changed, but we think if we jump on them, we'll fix it. When in actual fact it's the brain that's done that and that they see that as nagging, which then impacts the relationship, which means they won't come to you, you know, when they're hurting. So one of the things that came out of the survey, which kind of made my heart sing a little after having written Mothering Our Boys, so it was nearly 2,000 men aged over 30. I asked who was the most significant person while you were in those teen years, those bumpy ride to manhood, and nearly 56% said their mum and only 15% said their dad. Now what came out from the survey was how hungry those men were for a warm relationship with their father. But you remember that at the time, the man box was still saying, you've got to be firm on your son or he'll end up really, you know, not good enough. So they didn't realise that the relationship, the, the connection and the warmth is what every boy is hungry for. So they want that relationship. And the reason that they put mum there was she's the one most likely I can fall on when I've, when I'm hurting. Yeah. And I think she'll still love me after it. So can you see it's, the big message is when they pull away from us, it's a biological drive. They have no idea why suddenly they're forgetting stuff like their backpack on the bus and their football boots and what classroom they're in. They don't want to do that. And so they start to really come down on them. Girls do the same. Girls have the same kind of self-loathing, but it's very different. Boys then think it's something wrong with them. Because we shame them so much when they're little, you still listen to the language. We know that boys get spoken to more severely. They're punished more severely in our school systems for the same misdemeanour as girls. So they kind of have a deep layer of shame. They've pushed down, which then when the limbic brain grows in adolescence, up comes these highly intense emotions. So it's all kind of a melting pot that when they're angry, they're often covering sadness, fear, anxiety, a deep sense of um, yearning for someone to love them as they are. So it's kind of why I had to write such a big book to decode it all so that when we can get to understand that, we can come to them when they're, after they've been angry and, go, and, and instead of 
wanting to talk in the moment because we know they take ages to be able to access their word center. Us girls access our word center in the middle of our anger. Yeah. Yeah. Don't we? Yes. <laughs> we know the brain shows that our limbic brain, our word center. Boys, limbic brain, body, 24 hours later, the word center. Yeah. Oh, so when we know that, we can come to them 24 hours later and go, wow, yesterday was really, you, you were really angry. There's a chance they'll be able to tell you what that was and they'll be able to, you can help them then work out a different way of managing whatever triggered that. Yeah. Interesting. And on that note, Maggie, can you talk to us about what happens in the teenage brain during puberty and the neural pruning that happens during this time we have to be their second brain sometimes and constant motivator? When do we stop managing and how do we get our boys to be inspired, take charge and take initiative? That's a fabulous question. I'm so glad you asked it. So the, one of the key things that's been coming up from the book is that when parents have read the parts of the book about the brain proning that lets you be more forgetful and disorganised, there's a palpable sigh from these teenage boys. And then what the parents are going, so can we work together to help you remember things? So what sorts of ways could we do that? So what we do is we bring them. Um, they've identified now this isn't because I've suddenly got thick. This is because my brain's accidentally pruned too much off. So we work out ways that are good at remembering things. I had a giant kind of timetable on my fridge because I had three in puberty at the same time, trust me. And it was very clear on kind of that fridge. It was forever empty. But it was really us working together. And, I mean, that was kind of before they all had their own phones. And I now know we've got digital reminders and we can send a quick text message, but even that they can forget. So you can send a text message at lunch saying the orthodontist is at 3, 3.30, and they'll forget by 3.30. So the key <laughs> is not to get angry with them, but the key is also to help them build more capacity. This is when mums, out of the goodness of their hearts, often step forward and start doing more and more things for them. That's a big mistake. So we have to call them to make sure they master maybe one chore a week that they they don't forget. And how we remind them of that without nagging is say it's the dishwasher. So they come in after school and you might say to them, so it's your turn to do the dishwasher. Do you want to do it now or do you want to do it just before dinner? Because mm-hmm. the key aspect is they must maintain their sense of autonomy and freedom. Okay, That's what adolescents are about, girls and boys. So if there's a choice involved, the second one is how do I ask that? Yeah. Do I call out and, you know, once again, we get so sick of having to be the second brain that we can get frustrated. But if you walk over, rub his back, maybe tread on his foot, call him his endearing name since he was a little baby like Bub, it is your turn to do the dishwasher later. There's a bigger chance he will hear it because everything they're tending to hear starts with a tone that says you've done wrong again. So we're we're working with them to build capacity. And that that's why they have to put their washing out. And by 14, they should be washing at least a load of their own washing a week and knowing how to peg it out. So can you see, we've got to build capacity right in the window that they're feeling most helpless and most useless. Yeah, got mm-hmm. it. Now, on that note as well, what differing advice do you have to dads raising boys and moms raising boys? Acknowledging also that there are same-sex and solo parent and guardian households. Yeah. Well, other than the fact that there were a, a, an enormous amount of men responded 
in the survey, they said they wanted their parents, no matter whether it was mum or dad, to have those big conversations with them that they were avoiding. You know, we go, oh, I hope the school covers sex ed. You know, I hope it's talking about this. I hope they're talking about the dangers of that. No, that's our job. And we need to bring those conversations around the dining table um, while we're watching a film. We have to endlessly be coaching our boys into the image and calling that we have for them. And we have to keep telling them that our job is to help raise you to be the best man you can be. We're not going to leave it to chance. So it's two kind of things that we do know that men communicate in a different way. What boys tell you, they just want to hang out with their dad. Mm. They just want to hang out with him. They don't want him to sit down and interrogate them and growl them. They just want to hang out with him. And in the hanging out, the proximity is what builds the bond of love. And every now and then with that bond of love, then dad can take him quietly outside if he has shouted at or said being disrespectful to mum. He might just take him a quiet walk outside and sit down next to him side by side and say, hey, bud, that was that was not okay. I don't want you talking to your mum like that. That's not what good men do. Powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just that that's the shift they want. Then on mums, our biggest challenge is we've got so much we want to say. <laughs> too much. <laughs> so, too much. <laughs> <laughs> so we do know that there's this kind of limit that boys and men can absorb and then they glaze over because it's just. Yeah. And also we tend to go round and round circles before we get to the point. So I, you know, I often suggestions about how can we communicate most effectively with them because so often they don't think what you're talking about is even an issue, mm. you know, and they always go, well, so what's in this for me? What is in it for me? And then um, I think the big key one about us and communicating is so often when we want to say something, as I said before, that's the wrong time to say it. Yeah. Okay. We want to say it right now. It's true because you know it's it's not effective when you launch no. into that mode. When we it's launch never be into it, no. And mm. the other thing, which I know, is that most of the time, and I'm going to go back to that lamb and rooster. Most of our lamb boys don't really need, you know, uh, they don't push the boundaries as much. You know, they can get lost by you know being a bit more anxious and not as bold and brave. Um, but don't think they're not because one of my lambs surfs the biggest surf in Margaret River that his brothers won't surf and yet he was the lamb in between two roosters. He's just quietly confident about himself. Mm. He doesn't chest bang. But in that, you know, every now and then, um, how do I put it in a nice way? Sometimes we've got to let roosters learn by natural consequences. Mm. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. So one of mine was, you know, once again, very keen at skateboarding uh, illegally on the road without a helmet on. Um, and I had to let the police pulling him up at some point. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And they had to have the conversation, right? So what we did used to do was we collectively helped each other with those messages. And so it's not so much about mum and dad. It's about have we got a boy tribe around our boys who are people who know them and love them and value them? And that can be teachers and coaches. And every now and then remind them that they're part of your mission so that if, you know, one of them's not handing work in, rather than you be the nagger, maybe have a chat to the teacher who it is so they have a bit of a chat to them so it comes from where it needs to be so it's the collective parenting of voices that keep calling them to the center um, rather than just us but the rooster one the rooster boy um you know they're they're the ones often that think you're wrong all the time I worked out that that was when I wrote the mum letter so the mum letter needed to be something. If it kept me awake at night two nights in a row, I knew it was a big enough issue for me 
that I also knew he's not going to listen to me. So to write a mum letter, you start with something loving about the boy, then you go into your concerns really pragmatically and then you say something at the end is, you know, I still love you more than all the hairs on all the bears or whatever it might be and you, you leave the letter somewhere. Now you never bring the letter up again. So what I've found is that they would keep reading it to see what I was really on about. Mm. And it was usually an issue that did need them to think about the choices they were making, but it was non-judgmental. It was in their own time. And it's so funny because I even had to write one to um, one of my boys when he'd first gone off to uni and uh, he'd been picked up a couple of times for not wearing his seatbelt. And I just thought, come on, you're at university. Put your belt on, you know, and I thought, you know, I wrote a mum letter and he said, he sent me an email back that said, gee, mum, my bum even got numb while I read that on the toilet. So they'll often go somewhere private to read it, which is really funny. But you don't do it all the time and it's about those big issues that are about their character. Okay. Because anytime you want to talk about their values and character, they glaze over going, oh, whatever. But, you know, there are times that it needs to be deep. And often being in that quiet space where yes. they can actually absorb what is being said, yeah, right? Correct. Yeah, that's that's a great takeaway. I love that one, Maggie. Mm. So, we know we can manage our boys from six to thirteen regarding screen time. This is easy, but for older teens, there is an underlying frustration and concern from parents nowadays with how much time they spend on their devices. So, what is appropriate from fourteen to seventeen, and what advice would you give to parents around helping our boys self-regulate with their phones? I'm not sure all the parents would would agree with you on it's easy up to see <laughs> up to fifteen. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> okay. So we're calling them now to be responsible about their choices. So, and I did have a mum come up to me at one point and say, "Maggie, so how do I know how much time?" And I said to her, "You know, sometimes it's not so much how much time; it's what else is it displacing in their life that's important for their development." And, I mean, you know, if you say, oh, it's okay to have two hours a day, are they watching porn, you know, or are they playing Minecraft with their friends? There's a whole big difference about how are we using that world. So um, I came up with a kind of agreement that, you know, so we need them to look at can you maintain your grades? Do you have an activity that you're engaged in that's off screen? Do you connect with your friends in real time? Are you doing your chores? Are you costing more money? Are you being respectful online? You know, there's a whole list of them. Because if you are, then I'm going yeah. to let you make those choices. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Like the big one is that there is a bedtime and it's a not negotiable in our house because we know that sleep impacts well-being on so many levels. And that if any one of those agreements is kind of broken, then they lose access to it for 24 hours, not a week. Because what you do if you do a week, you just tip them into such a rage that you can damage the relationship. Mm. 24 hours is great for a reset. They suddenly go, oh, no, I'm going to do anything so I can get back on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anything. And I think that's where, you know, at the end of the day, um, also having conversations about safety online and their behaviour online is really mm. big. So every now and then, you know, and some of our fabulous cyber safety people put some really good stuff up online. We go in and we share something with them about a new dangerous setting on roadblocks or something that's not very good on you know whatever it might be and say have you heard about this you might need to tell your friends so the key is you don't say it's about them you say it's about letting your friends know what we know for teens and really big for teen boys is they're 
absolutely committed to watching out for their friends' safety but not their own. Okay, okay, okay. I know it's crazy, but if you word it like that, same if you're worried about them and anxiety with an exam coming, don't ask them are they anxious. Just sort of casually mention any, do you reckon any of your mates are getting anxious as the exam comes closer? Because sometimes it can really give you, you know, not just getting crabby or pulling away. It can, you can get diarrhea. Did you know that? You know, and you can have a really general conversation because you've also noticed that he's in the toilet a fair bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you kind of pick it up. I know it sounds awful, but it's called manipulation with great love. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> that works for 16, 17-year-olds. What are you mean? Oh, and there is a goodness them too. Them. <laughs> Husbands as well. There is a goodness that they... They really do want to yeah. watch out for their friends and their, sometimes their sister or their brother, but not themselves. Crazy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. So it's about speaking from a third-party point of view and it's also back to what you said. They need to know what is it in for me here, the yes. structure, the rules, right, with, mm-hmm. the, with the boys. If we look at the, you know, the psychological benefits of online, You know, that's all the things that you used to meet in the real world. You know, connection, competence, um, Mm. you know, autonomy. All of the things that are drivers for adolescents is online. So it's kind of not their fault. They didn't make the world. But I do really, I'm not anti, absolutely not anti-gaming at all, but we do have to keep watching, just double-checking, you know. And every now and then um, I'll say to parents who's, you know, kids have got smartphones that part of the deal of this is every now and then on a you know on a Sunday I'll just I'll do a random check of your phone Mm. because what we've noticed is some of our what I put in inverted commas good boys but boys who aren't spreading you know dick pics and and rude photos and whatever and and horrible videos from porn online often it ends on their phone because someone sent it to them and they forget to delete it now if that gets picked up at school they're the one that gets the criminal offence. They're the one that goes on the sex offenders register and they can forget. We know they forget. So on a Sunday morning, you might say, oh, how about I check your phone this afternoon? Mm. So guess what? That gives them time. If they have forgotten and there's something on there, they can get rid of it because we want them to get rid of stuff that sometimes a friend has sent because he thinks it's funny. And even if your son doesn't think it's funny, it's really hard and it's one of the things that we've, you know, calling for now is for our boys to be part of that solution that says, mate, I don't want that rubbish. I don't think that's okay. That's not how I'm planning to treat girls and women later in life. Yeah. Giving them the voice, not just the silent thing that says, oh, that's awful. We need them to step forward and have that voice. You have been listening to the wonderful Maggie Dent joining us for Finding Peace in Parenting. Our interview with Maggie featured so much great advice. We'll be running the second half in our next episode. Join us as we talk about how to talk to our boys about risky behaviour and tips on how to communicate with our teenagers. And how to motivate boys that have lost interest in school. Maggie Dent has amazing resources for parents at her website, maggiedent.com. There are great articles, online courses, webinars on parenting boys from littlies to teen. And this include lifetime access so listeners can watch them whenever they want. And of course, we highly recommend Maggie's wonderful new book, From Boys to Men. I love, 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 love this book. The Bible. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please let others know by sharing and rating us whenever you listen to our podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. If you would like to get in touch with a question for us to discuss in a future episode, please send us an email or send us a voice memo to hello at findingpeaceinparenting.com.